This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Do you have a plan for the day when civilization collapses into a lawless wasteland ruled over by marauding bands of bloodthirsty criminals? The folks at Fortitude Ranch do. We hear from a local restaurant owner who reacts to the latest regulations introduced by the province. And there are a number of legal challenges that could be launched as Americans go to the ballot box. All of this starts now. Of course, Election Day stateside, and uh, while the result may not be forthcoming as of late tonight or tomorrow, it may take a while. Some are even positing, though, that it could lead to other consequences, including at its most ominous societal collapse, perhaps even potentially a civil war. Wow, uh, that sounds kind of extreme. But to that end, it's been said that uh, many people are making preparations for any such eventuality or outcome. Uh, including a group that are considered survivalists in southern Colorado at the Fortitude Ranch, which was set up by former U.S. Air Force Intelligence Officer Drew Miller, who has joined us here on The Oakley Show. Mr. Miller, it's good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, listen, I mean, when they say it's a survivalist uh, operation, I mean, you tell us how you define uh, your own Fortitude Ranch there in Colorado. Well, the term we really use is preppers rather than survivalists. We're prepared for anything, any kind of major disaster now. It used to be we focused on things like pandemics and loss of our fragile electric system. An avian flu is coming. All the experts are saying it's inevitable we're going to have an avian flu pandemic that's not less than 1% lethal like COVID-19, but 60% lethal. So historically, we've prepared for these events, but with all the violence that's gone on this summer and the two sides so irrevocably disagreeing uh, with this election, there's just big chances of violence. So we're not expecting a civil war could result. It's certainly not rational, but you look at history and how violence and looting expands and can degenerate and get out of control. And so that's why we opened our 40 ranch locations. And we're not just Colorado. We're West Virginia and Nevada as well. And so we open them up for our members in case they're concerned about the potential for violence. And most of our members haven't come here, but some have just uh, to be barrel prepared. And we're a dual-purpose organization. We're not just for a survival community. We're also a vacation space, uh, vacation resort. We're in the mountains and forested and mountain areas. So if, you know, things aren't bad on the election day, our members who came here, you know, we're not going to be upset. We're just going to do vacation activities rather than hunkering down for violence that might escalate out of control. So we don't think it's likely. We're not paranoid. We're not panicked. Uh, We're just prepared for the worst. That's what preppers do. And if things go bad, we're prepared. If things don't go bad, then we're pleasantly surprised and we'll do our vacation thing. (laughs) In a bucolic setting, uh, in the event that a mushroom cloud should interrupt things, you're prepared for that eventuality as well. All right. Well, it's been said that you're uh, going into collapse mode. Uh, Is that true? And what is that exactly? Uh, We're not going to go into what we call collapse mode. Collapse mode means, you know, the economy's not functioning, there's widespread violence, loss of law and order. Uh, That's what we define as a collapse. So we don't expect that to happen. It's just that with this election is such a big trigger event and the possibility of violence. I mean, all across the United States, downtowns are boarded up, governments and police are in overtime expecting there could be really bad violence. And things could just escalate out of control. It's not rational. It's not something you'd expect, not something that should happen. 
Uh, but it can happen. And we've seen this throughout history. I mean, Katrina shouldn't have been that big a deal. You know, hurricane forecast for for decades, and then, you know, days warning, and then it was just flooding. You know, no one should have died, but there was panicking and looting and violence and policemen deserting and policemen committing crimes. Things just spiraled out of control. And that could happen in this election. And we've seen it in, like, the United Kingdom had that in 2011. Uh, they had violence that broke out with no trigger event, not an election, not a police brutality incident. It's just that through social media, some people attack some police in London, and other people use it as an opportunity to start looting, and it spread, and it spread to other cities, and it went on for four nights in the United Kingdom in 2011 uh, for no good reason. So there's just a chance in our society, and probably more so in the United States and Canada, that uh, things can escalate out of control and violence can start. You know, we've got a million gang members in the United States who will exploit opportunities when police are too busy uh, to start committing more crimes. Police just can't be everywhere at once. Wow. Uh, and so a place to withdraw from the civil chaos and uh, avoid all such. Drew Miller again with us, retired U.S. Air Force colonel and now CEO of Fortitude Ranch. Numerous locations uh, there in southern Colorado, as well as, uh, I guess, Wisconsin has been cited, but West Virginia, Nevada. Any idea to come to Canada? Is there any uh, interest, do you think, in Canada for such a, a facility? Oh, very much so. We have thousands of people waiting to join as we expand. We're raising capital now to expand, and that'll include Canadian locations. A lot of people there would like to have it. And if, you know, we'd be located towards the obvious spots, you know, within a half day's drive of Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal. So those locations could serve both Canadians and Americans nearby. So as we get more investors, uh, we hope to be in Canada as well. How are you resourced, meaning, you know, uh, the preparedness for how long an eventuality, uh, food? I'm just wondering if, you know, uh, you could put kids in school there. To what extent are you isolated and self-sufficient? And by the way, are you armed as well? Uh, you, if you're a prepper and you're not armed, you're an idiot. I mean, if you have a lot of supplies stockpiled, you don't have a lot of guns and ammo and a lot of guards that you can keep on duty all the time, you've just made yourself a more tempting target. Uh, for marauders and gangs and desperate people who are starving to death and out looking to survive by breaking in the houses of people who have stuff uh, to steal it from them. So we absolutely are well prepared. We have stockpile food. We've got animals and gardening. So we can go for at least a year, and you need to be able to go for a year or more. I mean, the, it was not the 20 or the 1918 pandemic. It was 1918 to 1919 lasted a year and a half. And, uh, you know, if the electric system goes down from a solar flare event, from an EMP, from a major cyber attack that takes out a lot of transformers, those things don't take weeks to replace. They take months, over a year, that the electric system could be down. The former U.S. CIA director warned that if our electric system is taken down by an EMP event, it'll be down for over a year, and you could lose, their estimate was, up to 90% of the population, which seems extreme. It's just, imagine it. There's no functioning production going on when your electric system goes down. Uh, there's no municipal water systems. You don't have electricity. You don't have pumps. You do not have water in any city or suburb. Uh, people can't go without water for long, so... Uh, it's just a disaster when our electric system goes down, our elected officials in the U.S. know, study after study, saying, hey, we've got a fragile electric system, we need to invest billions to improve it, but they won't do it. They're too busy buying votes with welfare programs and health care subsidies and all these things to win votes and not doing their primary job of protecting citizens from threats we can't handle on our own. So we've got an electric system that any day 
could go down for over a year, meaning no economy functioning, meaning no water systems in the cities and suburbs, and widespread loss of law and order as people struggle to do whatever they can do to get food and survive. So I'm guessing then uh, you've sort of, this is well thought through, you've accounted for all different scenarios and uh, feel you're adequately prepared for such. Now, is it working on a membership basis? I think you alluded to that. Do people pay in? Uh, I'm just sensing that if it does come to uh, some kind of a calamitous situation, you're going to have all kinds of folks. You're going to have to have that siege thing going on, siege mentality, and uh, pull up the drawbridge uh, and let the others, I guess, uh, sort of cancel themselves in the moat. How would you reconcile that uh, conscientiously? Um, well, you know, we, we tell people, we warn people about the threats, we talk about the need to prepare, and there's, there's millions of preppers in the United States. You don't know about it, and they're all over the world, because the first rule of prepping is don't tell anyone you're a prepper. You don't want people to know you've got a lot of supplies in your house, or in our case, out in our facilities. So there's a lot of preppers, and, and our rationale is, you know, we, we make a pledge to our members, if you join Fortitude Ranch, we will keep you alive, and that does mean we have defensive walls, and if people come begging for food, uh, staff like myself will go out and tell them, no, you cannot have any food, you cannot come on our facility, you must go away, and we have weapons to protect our facilities. We'll keep our members alive, and other people who didn't prepare are on their own, or they can foolishly trust in government to help them, and preppers are aware that you know government is just so irresponsible in the United States, they don't have the preparations for obvious things like pandemics, or loss of the electric system, things that experts say are inevitable, uh, but our government that's so irresponsible down here just won't prepare for because they're too busy buying votes with other programs that are more immediate appeal to voters. Maybe a little esoteric to ask, but uh, what if the government were to cite eminent domain and uh, just take you over? Well, the government's going to be in any kind of collapse situation so overwhelmed, they're not going to be a threat to us. I mean, they're a pain in the rear end now. The biggest barrier, the biggest problem with with prepping is stupid government regulations and government bureaucrats. I mean, like take antibiotics. Smart to stockpile those, isn't that? Well, that's illegal. You can't do that. So what do preppers do? We stockpile fish antibiotics, fish amoxicillin and other stuff. And so you want to build a place, you know, like we have remote areas. A lot of people like to have a retreat, a bug-out location they can go to. Well, the cost of that is huge because of asinine government building codes and regulations and plumbing inspections. And instead of using a $5 circuit breaker, stupid-ass building codes down here will force you to do a $75 circuit breaker that also has some other little fault protection that you do not need, should have the freedom to decide if you want it or not. But no, you've got to spend you know, more than 10 times as much for your circuit breakers because of asinine government regulation. So government doesn't prepare to protect the population in the United States and then puts up all kinds of barriers that makes prepping more difficult. I'm in Colorado. We have limits on the size of clips uh, for our defensive um, rifles that we've got. So we have to deal with that stupid regulation. Again, government is not helping people like they should to survive disasters like loss of the electric system or a real pandemic like avian flu or a bioengineered virus at Iran or North Korea or al-Qaeda or even some dedicated uh, Unabomber-type person releases. And then they make it hard for people to be prepared. But they're not really a threat to us in a collapse because the government will be down as well. So... They'll be less of a bother to us in the collapse than they are now in peacetime. 
I was going to say, you know, uh, your concerns or frustrations are not just endemic to the United States, so we can yeah. relate to some of that. But I'm kind of curious now, uh, how many members do you have? And do you also have paid staff uh, to make sure through thick and thin uh, they're going to be there and, you know, uh, performing their duties and responsibilities? Uh, we've got over 100 members at each of our locations, and we consider you have to have at least 50 people in the survival community because you have to have a lot of guards on duty. You know, if you've got, like, say, 20 people, you're going to have a hard time keeping even two guards on duty at night. And if you've got two guards on duty at night, that means me and one other bad guy can take you out because we just scout you out. We figure out where your two guards are at night. And at 2.15 in the morning, you know, I'm on my walkie-talkie with my buddy on the other side, and he says, you got your shot lined up? Yep, mine is too. We both shoot at the same time. We hit our guards. They're dead. We're quiet for 15 more minutes. No one inside has woken up from the gunshot or stayed awake. Your guards are now dead, and the other 18 people sleeping inside don't know it, and we move in. So I started as a prepper, a traditional prepper that, you know, I've got my house and I'm with my family, but eventually figured out that if it's a bad collapse situation, I mean, I can't make it. I can't do it all on my own. You need a lot of guards on duty at night. You need a lot of people. So we have defensive walls with over 100 people, all of them with weapons. No one's going to be bothering us in a collapse. They're going to go down the road and find some other house where someone only has a few people or 20 people, and a marauder group can take them out. So that's the situation as preppers see it when things go really, really bad. So uh, the final takeaway, I mean, has there been a bump in business of late because of the anticipation that maybe there would be civil unrest in the, the aftermath of the election? Uh, not so much the election as just the, the violence all summer long, just people uh-huh. seeing the trend in the United States of these irreconcilable sides. And, you know, the defund the police movement has alarmed a lot of people. And uh, we don't have enough policemen as it is. We should have a huge reserve police force like we have a reserve military. I mean, that'd be the smart thing to do. There's a lot of preparations the government could take to make us prepared for pandemics. You know, obvious things, stockpiling N95 masks. We had N95 masks. Tons of them stockpiled before the pandemic. We weren't contributing to the toilet paper shortage in the United States. We had it stockpiled already before the pandemic. But all summer long, people have seen the unrest and our society so divided, and they decided, you know, this prepping, which used to seem kind of silly, does kind of make a lot of sense. And then when you consider avian flu, which, again, experts say we are going to have a human-to-human contagious form of avian flu. It's 60% lethal now. And when that pandemic hits, the experts say you'll lose a billion people potentially killed by the virus, but you could lose more than that from the collapse, from the lack of an economy, lack of food production uh, for over a year as a horrible virus like this plays out, and then no law and order. You know, you call the police, hey, there's a gang going through our neighborhood, break it into houses. Police are probably aren't going to be able to answer the phone, let alone send someone out. They can't do that when this is happening all over the place. Wow. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate your painting that post-apocalyptic picture for us here. (laughs) However, uh, on that note, we'll let you go and uh, we'll hope for the best. If that does come to pass, I don't know who will be blamed for it at that time. Uh, We'll burn that bridge when we get to it, so to speak. Uh, Drew Miller, good to talk to you. I appreciate that. And if you ever come to Canada and open up, uh, we'll need to know about it so we can just pursue that uh, conversation a little fuller. Great. Well, as we get more investors, we'll be there. Fair enough. If there's a calling for that, uh, maybe before the avian flu thing starts to uh, ravage our societies. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. All the best. Thank you. You got a Drew Miller, retired U.S. Air Force colonel.
and now CEO of Fortitude Ranch. We got some new rules of engagement earlier today and a new uh, system of classification or categorization, but we're still in this restrict mode, orange, that's the color code. York and Peel get out of that on Saturday, so in-restaurant dining will be permissible again, as will going to gyms with uh, slight restrictions on distancing, etc., etc. But in Toronto, we're going to extend that out another week. And if you're just hanging by a thread as an operator of a restaurant or bar, you can't be happy about that. Let's find out about these frustrations and the concerns. John Sinopoli is with us on the line, co-owner of Ascari King West, the Hilo Bar, and Guard de Lest in Leslieville. John, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, well, you're the restaurateur here with uh, several establishments. How do you feel that uh, the COVID-19 protocols are, are treating you? Uh, do you sense it's uh, about appropriate, or uh, are you feeling, well, I don't know, somewhat victimized by it all? Uh, <laughs> we, we don't, I don't think victimized is the right way to characterize the nation. I, I think un, unduly uh, uh, targeted is probably a better way to put it. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in our industry, a lot of colleagues of ours around the city screaming now that, you know, the restrictions that were put on us to close indoor dining were done so without actual data, without actual evidence, and that they were um, basically implemented so the government could be seen to be doing something. And, um, you know, our response to the restrictions is, where is the contact tracing? Where is the testing capacity? Where is um, Toronto Public Health? Um, enforcement army of people to go out and find the bad actors and find the problem customers and to and to correct behavior. Um, instead, what's happened is the pub- public health has done very little to enforce their own rules to um, to contact trace uh, and and so we are now paying that price. Uh, so the new rules that came out today are troubling for a number of reasons, um, not the least of which is that. Uh, we will only when when we are allowed to, when we are allowed to have indoor dining, which is on November 14th. Which you know, Mayor Tory and uh, and we assume um, the Toronto Public Health leader Davia have lobbied to extend Toronto another week with the indoor dining shutdown. The problem is that we uh, can now only serve till 9 p.m. Can only have tables of four. Um, you know, there's there's tighter restrictions. You know, we just don't understand what's behind those rules, how they created them. Um, and it's really frustrating because we are all now on the knife's edge. Like the, the string that we're holding on by is literally a thread and it's about to break for many, many operators who are going to lose their life savings and default on mortgages and have, don't would not have an income anymore. Yeah, I'm surprised uh, you've lasted this long, given all of these different uh challenges that had to have been met over the last eight months or so notwithstanding you know the government programs and everything like that but you want to stay in Mm -hmm. business you want a viable business Mm -hmm. so you know when we talk about those restrictions uh that are being tweaked uh you still don't feel this is adequate uh by way of a response because they're not giving you empirical data as to why three meters apart is better than two and why closing at nine is better than say 11 or midnight Correct. And, and we know there, I'm sure there's probably sound rationale behind that thinking. The question is, you know, to, to what end? Uh, how is it safer with four people than six? Um, you know, by that logic, my business partner who happens to have three children can't go out to dinner with his entire nuclear family. It, it, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and how they live in the same household. How is that? 
safer than four 25-year-olds who all live in different apartments with all separate roommates all get together for dinner and create more of a challenge that way. Like, the numbers are just arbitrary. What they should be saying is, don't go out to dinner with people who are not from your bubble. But they're not. They're, they're leaving it to the restaurant industry to police because they haven't put the resources required to police it themselves. And, and so we're paying the price because the city of Toronto and the province of Ontario have not expended the resources necessary to contact trace and to up testing to create a safer society. So they're putting it on business to create that safer society for them. Well, they're saying, John, the province will continue to add data sets as they become available, such as sources of outbreaks as a, su- a subset of overall cases. And this information will better help businesses, organizations, and local communities to access key information to prepare in advance for any changes in their region. Uh, I thought that would be an important uh, element in all of this, to know where the sources of outbreaks are, as you said, because right now you can be condemned and closed down effectively because maybe there was one outbreak in a region, you know, 20 kilometers from your restaurant. So uh, not You nailed it. You nailed it. You couldn't be more right about that. I mean, look, we welcome all new information, all new transparencies. Like, it should have been like that from the beginning. The bottom line is that the province of Ontario has $9 billion to uh, spend on COVID-19 preparedness and health response, and they've only spent $3 billion. Why are they holding on to this money? What are they, could they possibly be waiting for? All they're doing is putting all of our businesses and lives at risk by not spending this money, not being prepared, and now as small business owners, we're all paying the cost. Yet they go on the pulpits every day and they claim to be in support of us. They, you know, they pray for our good, you know, all the, we all survive and they're, they're rooting for us, but they're actually not doing anything. They're not doing the work that needs to be done. We've been hustling. We've been doing the work to stay alive. We've been like scrambling to add revenue streams and reach out to customers, do online, do bottle shops, do takeout. We're the ones doing the work and they're not spending the money. I'm kind of curious as well because, uh, you know, whereas they used to allow people to uh, have curbside dining because, uh, you know, you could go outside and now that the weather's wet and cold and getting darker sooner uh, and then there's going to be snow routes, they're going to curtail that or already have, I guess, started to dismantle some places. Was it not you that set up uh, out in uh, Leslieville at Gare de l'Est, one of your restaurants, dome dining that got shut down on the weekend? Yeah, so of course we ordered this dome before the restrictions took place because um, we, we knew we wanted to try it out, see if we wanted to order more of them to, to, as an option through the winter for, uh, to add seating capacity, giving we knew that the indoor restrictions would be pretty severe. So, um, you know, this dome is a geodesic dome. It has one completely open side for a door. And then on the opposite side, a window that opens to create complete ventilation cross breeze. So, you know, someone called Toronto Public Health and said they didn't think the dome was safe. They came and they declared that because it didn't have two completely open sides, that it did not meet the requirements set out by Toronto Public Health in terms of outdoor dining dining enclosures. The problem is that those outdoor dining enclosure regulations assume a large tent with multiple tables and perhaps tens or hundreds of people inside, like spaced out, and with with people from multiple households. Our dome is one table. 
So if you think you're standing at the corner of Carla and Dundas, which is basically a wind tunnel, and that there's not enough airflow through a dome with a six-foot opening on one side and a two-foot opening on the other, like, I don't know what world you live in, but you're basically standing inside a breezeway. So um, the, the regulations are always old, always late, never take into account innovation, and are just completely unimaginative. And we get stuck in a bureaucratic tangle because one health inspector decides that we don't meet those requirements, even though there is, I mean, it's a table of six people. Everyone there should be in their bubble. There is no added risk to the public by people sitting in there. We don't have multiple tables inside a small dome without proper ventilation. It's just not the case. So the regulations have not caught up with the innovation of the industry. That's the bottom line. And you know, we spent thousands of dollars to put a dome up and, and, and get it in. Uh, we installed it ourselves, like days of work. And then for one person to call the health department, the health department to come and shut us down because we don't meet exactly the regulation, when in fact we meet the spirit of the law and the effectiveness of the regulation, is just complete ridiculousness, shows what's, in a nutshell, what's wrong with bureaucracy. And it shows that the city of Toronto just really doesn't care about small business. Yeah. Compounding the frustration. I can hear it in your voice, the inconsistency and lack of clarity. And hopefully, right. yeah, uh, the mayor. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like the regulations existed and we went and ordered this dome and, and kind of tried to spit in the face of the city. It right. was the opposite. These regulations didn't even exist when we ordered this. We installed it thinking, hey, we have lots of airflow here. Like, this shouldn't be a problem. And yet, you know, they just basically don't care. Yeah, what a sad uh, commentary that is on the city of Toronto. Maybe they've mismanaged this to the detriment of a lot of people, a lot of jobs at stake here. John Sinopoli knows that, co-owner of Ascari King West, the high-low bar in Garde de l'Est in Leslieville. If you're politically inclined, uh, this is manna from heaven. You've got a big election stateside today, as, of course, the reverberations will be felt for a long, long time to come. And maybe even the contest itself will not be settled for many days even weeks, months, who knows how long this thing could drag on, uh, and it could be contested on a legal basis, or several actually, uh, to wit, I'm not sure what those would be, but I defer to somebody who's an expert in this regard, and that would be Thane Rosenbaum, CBS Radio News' legal correspondent. He's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Thane, good to have you on board in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thank you, John. Always pleasure speaking to you. You know, I'm kind of curious. Uh, we're being told that there could be legitimate basis uh, for legal challenges with this uh, election and its outcome. Uh, if that's the case, what would they be? Uh, you know, if you can give us a sample of such. Well, I mean, there have already been at least four, if not five cases that are already underway. Um, three of whom which have already even gone to the Supreme Court as emergency petitions. The basic principles, because of COVID-19, John, uh, Election Day is not a day. It's now a week. Uh, it started weeks It started weeks ago for early voting and mail-in ballots and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, even drive-in balloting, which was the subject of a, of a skir legal skirmish yesterday in the state of Texas. Uh, so now you're seeing where normally all ballots it used to be, you know, absentee ballots only for members of the military, people traveling out of the country. Now it looks like that the majority of the votes will be actually done through mail-in ballots. The question is, what happens if they come uh, after postmarked after uh, election day? 
what if they have technical glitches attached to them? So, for instance, uh, it's supposed to be witness, doesn't have the witness, uh, doesn't have the date listed next to it. There's a perfectly functioning ballot. It, it indicates an intent, voter intent, but it's missing some things. This, these issues have never come up before, uh, including the fact that most of these states have election laws uh, created by the state legislators. And now we're altering them because of, you know, state courts are making decisions to extend the election day by three days, five days, six days, however long, depending upon some of these battleground states. So how do you know someone didn't show up to vote today, but they submitted their ballot three days ago? It hasn't arrived yet. How do you know they haven't? Right. I mean, that could very easily happen. Here we are being told today in the United States that the United States Postal Service has been running late, and they're now claiming that they're going to be running even more late. So if you really want to feel like you guaranteed your vote, you'd show up to the polls and, and not even tell anybody that you requested an absentee ballot and you'd already mailed it in and just vote. This is what Donald Trump seems to be worried about, or at least he's been claiming from the very beginning, the moment that you extended these deadlines and created a very new voting system where it was mostly done by mail rather than showing up on Election Day, that's the source of the potential abuse and, and, and fraud. Well, yeah, he's suggesting there could be duplicate voting, you know, same person votes twice. Uh, and then you've got the idea of Pennsylvania, for example, if it's postmarked by today, I guess uh, they're still going to accept it three days later. And so the count is extended beyond. Uh, I mean, this is a logistical nightmare. You say a lot of this has been contested at the state court level. I'm mindful of 2000, uh, Bush Jr., Al Gore, the danging or hanging Chad. Uh, that went right till December and the Supreme Court had to rule on that, didn't they? Yeah. And the interesting thing about that, uh, John, is that, um, you know, that case, you know, no one ever wants to mention that case. You're, you're in Toronto, you can mention it. But in the United <laughs> States, everyone's nervous. Don't say that. Don't say Bush v. Gore. The case itself, John, literally said, the, the, the opinion said, this is a one-time shot. We're not, this is not really precedent. This is just for this one limited circumstance. Um, limited to the present circumstance. And yet, last week, in an emergency petition to the Supreme Court from uh, the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Justice Kavanaugh invoked Bush v. Gore. <laughs> All of a sudden, it resurfaced again as precedent. And his basic argument is that the Supreme Court has the authority when it comes to federal elections, not state elections, but federal elections, uh, to stop uh, the to basically oversee what's being done at the state level that would be altering the state election law. So, for instance, the general election laws say that you, you can't ex accept ballots after Election Day. Well, that means that state courts and state election officials have made new rules. And what you're going to see in the next few days, I'm afraid, John, is this argument saying none of these states have the authority to extend those deadlines. That was an impermissible change that can't be done by courts. It can only be done by elected officials, elected legislators. So the courts had no authority to extend the deadline. And I, if you see a Supreme Court uh, uh, case, that's what the source of this is going to be. And Kavanaugh sort of uh, hinted at it last week when he said, well, and so did Justice Alito, that this presents a very different situation where uh, unelected uh, uh, courts, 
in states are changing the election laws to accommodate COVID. But a COVID is an emergency situation. So obviously that was the reason they did it. And I suspect that's what you're going to hear before the Supreme Court if you hear anything over the next few days. Well, I'm sure we'll hear plenty over the next few days. Uh, (laughs) It looks like we're setting ourselves up for a real hot mess here. Now, in the event of a razor-thin majority, uh, you know, by either either candidate, if it's razor thin, uh, does that complicate matters? I mean, is there a point after which there's a critical mass that would just be, you know, uh, insurmountable for either of the two candidates, so it would be a moot point to contest? Or is it enough that, you know, just a handful of ballots uh, may have been misappropriated, misdirected, or whatever mischief was involved? Uh, Would that be enough to trip litigation that ties the whole thing up for a while? I'm glad you actually raised that, John, because that raises yet a second question is, you know, missing ballots, ballots that seem to be uh, lost custody somehow. So somehow had it and then someone had it where they tampered with. So that's another aspect of this that changed because of the because of this new election procedures in connection with COVID. Remember Bush v. Gore, because there was I forgot what the number was, but it was such a low number between them after the some of the more votes came in in Florida that it demanded a recount, right? So that what you're describing is razor thin. The more razor thin you have, John, the more you have a legal basis for a demand for a recount. So that's also the concern, that the closer it gets, you would automatically trigger a recount, which is exactly what happened in Florida last time. Al Gore had already conceded. Within an hour, all of a sudden, the polls tightened, the numbers tightened. His advisors called him up and said, call back George Bush, tell him you retract your concession. You're not conceding because there's so few votes we're calling for a recount. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, History is about to repeat, I guess, in a fashion. This is uh, it's just a given uh, that this will be inconclusive after tonight, I feel uh, one way or the other. I think Dane, I right. appreciate. Uh, yeah, I appreciate your coming on, and uh, maybe we'll have to discuss this as uh, we get further down the road into uh, the swamp of litigation. <laughs> so keep your powder dry. Uh, we'll anticipate I, that. I have a feeling I hear your voice this week again. <laughs> you may just do, if not the next week or the week after that yeah. or the month after that. Thane Rosenbaum, CBS Radio News' legal correspondent. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good luck tonight. Anytime. Thank you. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 